Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website, online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. And I'm joined by my co-host, Amr Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming online at WBAI.org. Right, and we've got a fantastic show for everyone today. In our first segment, we'll look at an epic legal, legal victory in Queens yesterday for Prakash Churaman, which was also a movement victory for all those who fought for his freedom over the past seven-plus years. We'll also hear from our friends at the People's Forum who had their space assaulted on Friday evening with an assist from the NYPD. And in our final segment, we'll get an update from the Amazon Labor Union with lawyer Seth Goldstein and Amazon Labor Union member Connor Spence about the legal battle the union and Amazon are fighting as the company tries to get the National Labor Relations Board to overturn ALU's historic election victory at the JFK warehouse on Staten Island. But first, we turn to Prakash Churman's long-running legal battle, which came to a dramatic conclusion yesterday at the Queens County Criminal Courthouse. In 2015, Prakash, who was 15 at the time, was snatched from his home by the NYPD and bullied into making a false murder confession. He would spend four years on Rikers Island awaiting a trial while his peers went to high school and looked forward to beginning their adult lives. Prakash was convicted and then he saw that that murder conviction overturned on appeal but was then forced to live under house arrest with an ankle monitor that tracked his every move the queen's da's office was planning to retry prakash in the hopes of sending him away to prison for basically for the rest of his life but as his case uh, drew greater public scrutiny it began to collapse and yesterday at a routine pre-trial hearing Queen's prosecutors dropped all charges in the case to the astonishment of Prakash and his supporters. This is Prakash delivering the news outside the courthouse. I'm humbled to announce that today all charges against me were dismissed and I'm truly free. Now, this is a case the Independent has followed closely over the past couple of years, including a February 2021 cover story on Prakash Churaman's case that brought his story to a broad public audience for the first time. Joining us now are Prakash Churaman and his lawyer, Jose Nieves. Welcome both of you to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio. Thank you, John, for having us. Uh, I hope you can hear. Yes, we can hear you. Harrison, uh, excellent. Uh, Prakash and I are happy to be here to join you and discuss what happened yesterday in this in his criminal case. Right. So, Prakash, let's start with you. I mean, before we get into the, the, the legal case, uh, how are you feeling 24 hours later? What is What was it like yesterday to get this news in the courtroom after the, fighting this case for so many years? What, what, what were your feelings in that moment? I, I'm on, Honestly, I was just, from the moment I heard it, I was just in a state of shock, and I'm still in a state of shock right now, just processing and digesting it all right now. Right. And, and did you have your ankle monitor removed last night? Yeah. Um, I went to the sheriff's office and um, they allowed me to cut it off myself. <laughs> How did that feel? It felt great. 
16 months of having an ankle monitor on my ankle, man. And for me, I cut it off, my, cut it off myself. It was, it felt good, man. What, what do you cut an ankle monitor off with? How do you do that? Uh, some type of clamp device that they had. Um, they just gave it to me and told me, hey, cut it off. Right. Wow. And, and so, um, Jose, Jose Nieves, can you explain the official reason given by the Queens DA's office for why they're dropping these charges? And, and what do you think is the real reason that they dropped the charges? You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sad state of affairs when, you know, the stated reason of the district attorney's office was that they dropped the charges because they, no one had told them earlier over the last eight years that they were engaged in a illegal prosecution. Um, and had someone had mentioned it to them, they would have promptly dismissed the case earlier, but because they were not aware that they were engaged in an illegal prosecution, um, they, they, you know, they, they continued the prosecution and the incarceration of Bakash. Uh, and, and if you think about how absurd that is, you have an agency of 160 attorneys who's dedicated to being the experts of the criminal justice system, the people who are the gatekeepers, the managers of the criminal justice system, and they're claiming ignorance of the law. It's a sad state of affairs. Uh, the real reason, they couldn't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. They knew they couldn't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Their case kept falling apart at every step uh, from the conditional examination of the witness back in September, and it rolled downhill after that. Uh, they knew that we would bring, we would bring in um, expert witnesses to show that Prakash wasn't even in the area of the crime scene at the time of the crime. We were going to bring in witnesses that will clearly demonstrate that he was manipulated, coerced into uh, making a false confession. And we were to bring in uh, witnesses that were actually with him at the time of the crime in, in another location. So despite this, you know, evidence that they have and they've had for months, um, they refused to relent un- until I filed my motion to dismiss based on infancy statute, which basically called them out and said, listen, you should drop these f- at least five of the six charges because legally you're, you're, you can't hold them accountable for these, uh, for these five charges. And then they chose, they, on their own accord, to dismiss the criminal possession of weapon charge, a violent felony, because they felt, you know, if they're dismissing five, then why not six? Uh, the absurd statement um, in court was just based on them trying to save face, trying to deflect and trying to make it seem like there was somebody else responsible for the prosecution of Prakash. Right. And, and you said, you know, that there were at least illegal aspects of the prosecution. Can you, can you clarify what was illegal in the prosecution? So there were two motions that I filed and I think that played a a critical um, turning point in their decision. One was to disclose uh, their documents, uh, dismissal memo, Um, emails and other internal documents that uh, related to the dismissal of another case, another homicide case where where Detective Gallagher had been the key, one of the key detectives in that case. And Detective Gallagher was one of the key detectives in our case as well. Um, And that case was dismissed because he failed to provide exculpatory information, information that proved the defendant's innocence. And he also was accused of coercing a, a witness 
to, to falsely identify a defendant, defendants as perpetrators of the crime. We would have crossed him on that information, and we wanted to make sure that we wouldn't have all the information we needed to do it, and they were, we were forcing their hand to give it to us under the new discovery laws. And then secondly, we, we filed a motion basically saying five out of the six charges that they do have left on their indictment could not be, um, could not go forward because they would, the, at the time of the offense, uh, Prakash was 15 years old and under the law, he cannot be held criminally liable for those specific charges, uh, without other charges being added to the, Indictment. You have to remember that at the beginning of this case, there were 17 charges brought against Prakash. Um, the DA dropped nine charges before the first trial. The, during his first trial, the jury acquitted him of two charges. So the six remaining charges were a skeleton uh, of what was intended to be the full force of the indictment against Prakash. Um, and what was left uh, was not legally sufficient because he could not be held liable for those five charges. Now, the sixth charge, which was a criminal possession of a weapon, he could have been sentenced up to five years. And they just chose on their own accord to dismiss that count. And I believe it's because they knew they couldn't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, not with that charge or any other charge. Uh, so despite the stated reason that they were uh, unaware of the law, I think the the truth was they they knew they didn't have a case. Right. And in addition to the legal battle, there was also essentially a a political or or movement struggle. Uh, Tremendous uh, support uh, gathered around uh, Prakash over the years. Prakash, you had a lot to do with that, really organizing uh, this movement uh, from behind bars initially. Uh, Can you talk about the impact uh, of the the, the public movement uh, that came to your support? Honestly, yeah, John, uh, as far as the public support, I, I, none of this probably would even happen um, because these people are used to doing everything behind the curtains, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where no one's watching. So when I started building momentum, started building support, community support, um, they saw that. They felt that. I felt it. I witnessed it myself. Every time I'm coming to each appearance, I'm, wit- I'm witnessing the amount of support for me is, is overwhelmingly increasing every time. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And I want to thank every single last person that has ever contributed support to me. Right. And uh, we followed this case closely and as I mentioned before, we did a, a cover story on on your case in uh, 16 months ago, February 2021. What was the impact of, of having that kind of uh, uh, media uh, coverage? The impact was, was was very impactful. Let me put it that put it put it like that because um, it was evident that the judge Kenneth Holder did not like it. Uh, it was evident that the Queens District Attorney's Office did not like it. Um, and it just goes to show the power of exposure, the power of coverage, and the power of community building and, and networking and, and connecting. Right. Yeah, and just I, for I our listeners, uh, I, I'll, I'll just point out that when we, after we came out with the, that February 2021 issue, uh, you had a, a, a court hearing. 
uh, that following week. And we distributed uh, hundreds of copies on the on the courthouse steps. And some of those copies made their way into the courtroom. And apparently one of those copies made their way into the hands of uh, a judge uh, holder who uh, uh, strenuously objected to uh, being described as having uh, railroaded you in your first uh, trial when he denied a, a lot of you some key witnesses. So, um, you know, and of course, uh, Judge Holder is a former prosecutor himself. So uh, we were happy to get under his skin, but also more importantly, to get the word out more, uh, more broadly. Definitely. And John, it can't be understated though the impact of your article, because based on that article, more outlets, more media outlets paid more attention as to what was going on here, why more questions were being asked as to why this prosecution was going forward and what is the evidence truly against Bakaj that I think that they're not used to this type of scrutiny. And once they had the light shine on them on a case like this, they knew they couldn't, uh, you know, as uh, Bakaj said, hide behind the curtain. You know, and that's their that's the gamesmanship that they like to play is they they do things in a in in, in in a way that's very secret, that's very confused, that people don't understand, and they try to wear people down. Uh, they incarcerate as many people as possible, hoping they just give up and plead guilty. If they're released on bail, they'll they'll drag a case on for years just to try to wear them down to have them plead guilty. Uh, but when light was shown in this case there you know that that pressure was too much to bear for the DA's office well that's certainly the point of a community newspaper is to support the community so so we're glad to have had any hand in that um but you know you were just talking about uh plea deals and and it, you know you shine a little bit of light on it but it, it's so common in this country in the state in the city um for innocent people to take plea pleas because of the way the system is organized um so Pakash, can you just share a little bit about how you had the strength to not do that and why you didn't cop a plea honestly i i couldn't i wouldn't be able to just live on myself morally internally if I was to sit there and, 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 and admit guilt to something I know I did not commit. Um, and that was just the main thing that just stuck with me, like in my heart, in my mind, I'm innocent. And every single time I went to court, that's what's in my mind. Every single time they offered me a plea bargain. For the entirety of this case, they offered me two plea bargains. My first plea bargain was prior to my first trial in 2018. They offered me seven years to life. I declined it. I was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to to life in prison. I got my conviction overturned. As soon as I got my conviction overturned, Melinda Katz offered me a plea bargain. I was still in the first. Take it. Time served. I said no. And here I am today. Right. And uh, we just have a a couple more minutes here. And um, uh, last question. what what do you want to do next with your life? Uh, you, you have a, a, a um, an infant son and, and her mother. You all have a family. Uh, what what are your hopes and dreams now that you are free to live your life? I just want to like I just want to start with with healing, man. Because you know all of the trauma that I witnessed and that I personally experienced, it, it's not going to go away overnight. Um. So I just want, I really want to start this process with a lot of healing and a lot of bonding with my family, um, going out places, you know, with the family, um, 
and obviously continue in the social justice movement because there are thousands of me's right now on Rikers Island, right now in upstate prisons for crimes they did not commit. Mm. And and Jose Nieves, is there any uh, uh, lawsuits or anything that you all be contemplating pursuing against the district attorney? Yeah, there, there is. Um, I'm not involved in the civil side of the uh, the legal actions, but um, there is going to be a lawsuit. I, I understand a notice of claim has been filed uh, against the city of New York, the NYP, and the Queens District Attorney's Office, um, seeking damages in excess of $25 million for the six years of incarceration and the trauma that was sustained by Prakash. Um, you know, it, it can't be understated how one day incarceration can change a person's life. And at 15, he had to endure six years of incarceration. Um, and that's exactly one of the reasons why I took this case, because it reminded me of the Khalif Browder case. And ironically, you know, yesterday was the seventh, uh, the seventh year anniversary of Khalif Browder's death. You know, yeah. on, his, on the seventh year anniversary of his death, another young man in Queens was given life. And now it's Prakash. Right. Well, we'll I think we'll end on that note. But uh, Prakash Chiraman and Jose Nieves, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll continue to follow this case. And also, um, we'll be back um, with more in a short moment. also just want to shout out our reporters, Danny Catch and Julian Guerrero, and our photographer, Sue Brisk, who followed this story for more than a year now and did tremendous work. And uh, we'll be back with our next segment in just a minute. Thank you very much. to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5, and I'm Amba Gagarian here with my co-host, John Tarleton. Hi, Amba. It's it's great to continue the show, but before we can move to our next guest, uh, we need to uh, urge all our listeners out there to support WBAI radio to help keep uh, these kind of stories alive and beaming out on WBAI signal across the New York City region. That signal, uh, that antenna and transmitter are 
at the uh, four Times Square building in, in Midtown, a 52-story skyscraper with our antenna right there on the top beaming away. It costs over $17,000 a month to have that antenna up on the top of four Times Square. And, and it's such a unique, you know, WBAI is such a unique uh, asset uh, to all progressive movements uh, here in New York City and also for all its cultural uh, programming as well. Uh, we need our listeners to call 212-209-2950 or go to give number two wbaiorg uh, Right now, WBAI is three months behind on its rent at the tower, and we're not only looking to catch up to the rent, but to raise enough money to pay the rent through the rest of the year. So uh, we don't have to keep on doing this uh, every every three months or so, but we we need those calls to come in, 212-209-2950, whatever you can give, $10, $20, 50 $100 or more. Or you can sign up at give2wbai.org and become a WBAI buddy. Give uh, at least $10 a month every month. Be a sustaining supporter of WBAI, and you'll also be eligible for lots of great benefits. Right, and you can call 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number 2wbai.org to give and contribute to this community radio station. And just remember that, you know, all of the um, hosts, our volunteers, we're part of this community, and as listeners, you're part of this community. And if we want to support independent journalism, independent media, free voices, um we got to dig. We know that we're asking people who don't have a lot of money, um, but we need to pay that rent. So 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or online at give, the number 2wbai.org. Give, wbai.org. Right. The rent, the rent may be too damn high, but we've got to pay it. We've got to keep that a- antenna and that transmitter going at the top of uh, four times square. 17th grand a month. It's not cheap, but you know, think where we'd be with, without it. If we didn't have those, uh, have that signal, if we didn't have this radio station right in the middle of the FM dial broadcasting 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And also, I, I know people are like, man, this, you know, keeps on happening. Y'all have to ask uh, for support. Uh, there is some good news on the horizon, which is that the Pacifica network, which WBAI is a, a part of, uh, will be eligible for Corporation for Public Broadcasting funds starting next year. They lost access to that a few years ago. Uh, Some people did a lot of hard work to get that back on track. So Pacifica will be eligible for uh, CPB funds next year, which will definitely help, um, uh, you know, WBAI and the, and the four other stations in the Pacifica network. But right now we've got to get through the, you know, one more year of these tough times. And if, if people can give, big right now in this June uh, fund appeal. It'll make all the difference and better days are ahead, but we've got to get through uh, this current moment. 212-209-2950. 
Right. And, and now moving into our first segment, uh, sorry, our second segment today. On Friday, around 10 to 15 members of a far-right anti-vaxxer coalition stormed into the People's Forum, a socialist educational and cultural space on West 37th Street in Manhattan. According to members of the People's Forum who were present for the altercation, the NYPD facilitated the barrage by preventing the People's Forum from forcing out the occupiers. The protesters remained in that space for at least an hour while staff and guests were physically assaulted and verbally harassed and the space was vandalized. So here um, to speak with us about what happened is Lyon Fulhayan, Educational Director at the People's Forum and Popular Educator. Lyon, welcome, welcome to the show. Um, you you were present. You were, the I think, the only manager present on Friday. So if you could just jump in by telling us um, what happened, uh, set the scene, and, and how it all went down. Sure, and thanks so much for having me. Um, so you're right, I was the only manager present because actually we are all very excited and working very hard on the People's Summit in Los Angeles. Um, so we had a quiet evening that night on Friday Friday evening. Um, we didn't have any big events going on, um, and we were uh, stormed, as you said, by a group of uh, people claiming they were protesting this space because we do still ask people to show a uh, proof of vaccine or recent COVID test um, or, you know, to still take COVID precautions if they're going to participate inside the People's Forum. Um, so they did come in and attempt to occupy the space. Uh, as you said correctly, they were very aggressive. Um, we had uh, our staff. We also had other community members that were meeting in the space or just enjoying the space that immediately got up and began to try to de-escalate the situation and to protect each other in the space. Um, this went on for quite some time. Uh, and at some point, uh, the NYPD did enter the space and proceeded to observe the situation, did not take any concrete action um, and would not clarify what they were going to do or why they were there. Um, so this went on for, like you said, about an hour uh, until the uh, the disruptors, I suppose, lost steam, uh, exited the space, and uh, uh, protested outside for some time until they left. And they did um, leave some obscene stickers and other things all over the building. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was that evening. Right. And can you tell us a little bit more about uh, these uh, disruptors uh, in a, uh, some tweets that the People Forum uh, issued over the weekend? Uh, mm-hmm. It was also suggested that there were uh, some uh, essentially right-wing uh, uh, Cubans or Venezuelans that, uh, that were also a part of this or that was part of the, the messaging. Obviously, People's Forum you know, ha- has a very internationalist uh, uh, politics and has always expressed strong support uh, for the Cuban revolution. Uh, can you elaborate on uh, that part of what was going on? Sure. I mean, we've been the face of pretty consistent attack. I mean, we've been facing pretty consistent attacks uh, for quite some time because, as you said, our position uh, strongly opposing the U.S. blockade on Cuba, strongly opposing U.S. sanctions and strongly opposing imperialism, which makes some people quite upset. Um, And we've frequently there's been more frequency of these attacks recently. Um, There was the protesters did have some messaging about that. They weren't happy about our open position in favor of socialism. Um, they're not happy about any of the, the politics that are in our programs. Um, so that was definitely part of the, the messages that the disruptors were, were, were saying and were protesting. Um, 
repeatedly telling us that this is America. And if we don't like America, we should leave. Um, which was quite funny because we were also telling them that if they don't like our space, they should leave. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it was a funny uh, exchange there. And speaking of trying to get them to leave, um, uh, you know, we understand that the NYPD sort of didn't allow you to do that. Can you just explain uh, more about that and give a little bit more detail to their presence and how you think they showed up or what you know about them showing up, if anything? Sure. I mean, I don't know uh, why they showed up or, or how we did not call them. Um, and so they, they walked in. It's a public open to the public. The doors were unlocked. They walked in. Um, as you saw, possibly in the picture that we released with our statement, they were facing, uh, they were having their backs to the door and facing the, facing us. Um, so they weren't helping us. They were facing us, um, behind the disruptors. Um, and just kind of stood there, uh, did not make any attempt to deescalate the situation or to help and, and, or to, to ask the disruptors to, to move or to leave or go outside or protest outside. Nothing like that happened. Um, we're just there objectively observing um, and and just this is in a sense um, almost it seemed as if their presence was giving the okay um, and wouldn't give any information to us as to what to do. Right. Um, and, and how are you all prepared for this moment and how do you plan to continue uh, using de-escalation tactics? What, what do those tactics look like? Sure. I mean, we were prepared by this because this is definitely not the first time that we've experienced right-wing attacks on our space. Um, we, since last summer, we've been pretty frequently the target of these kinds of attacks uh, around the July 11 um, right-wing protests in Cuba and the escalation that happened from there. Um, so <clears throat> we, you know, we, we are prepared by practice and also just because our values of the space we are not interested in any sort of physical altercations. Um, we're not interested in getting into ideological debates just for the sake of them. We're interested in dialogue with people who are willing to learn and exchange. Um, so our staff and our community members were immediately able to assess the situation and know what to do and um, to act in an organized way. Um, so, you know, not reacting to provocation, uh, keeping each other safe. Um, I think you saw in some of the material that was posted online, standing calmly and just inching a line forward to try to move the disruptors out of the space and keep others who might be more vulnerable in the space safe. Um, we had children in the space. We had families in the space. It was really just uh, a very disrespectful um, uh, and violating action on their part. Um, and a waste of time for all of us who are trying to be using the space of the People's Forum to build organized struggle and to make relationships and actual change in the, in the world. It's a waste of time. Um, so we want to just prevent these things from happening and um, prevent things from escalating. Right. And, and we're, you know, um, very happy that you do have that de-escalation sort of tactic. And it sounds like, you know, to a certain extent it worked. Um could you explain a, a, a little bit more just the general stance of the People's Forum on uh, community safety and interacting with the police in general? I mean, we know very clearly who keeps keeps ourselves keeps our community safe, um, and it's not just in the People's Forum; it's all over New York City and the United States. We know that the police are not there to keep us safe; um, they're not there to protect 
um, working class communities. Um, and we're no different than that. Um, so we rely on our community members, our comrades, our friends. Um, we rely on the relationships that we've built through uh, the years of our education and our organizing uh, programs. And that's always kept us safe. And so that's that's something that we are confident that we'll always be able to defend our space and our work going forward um, with the comradeship and the support of our community in New York and beyond. We had an amazing outpouring of support after this incident that totally overwhelmed and humbled us from all corners of the world. And it's just been very, very encouraging. Right, because the People's Forum is known well outside of uh, New York with all the programming you do. And, of course, since the pandemic, you've done a lot of programming on Zoom as as well. And uh, uh, with that in, in mind, uh, can you tell us uh, – more about both uh, this week's People's Summit in Los Angeles, which many of your uh, comrades are participating in. And also just tell us more about the People's Forum, uh, uh, how people uh, can get involved, uh, where it's located, uh, anything else you'd want people to uh, know about this uh, institution. Sure. Well, I can start with the People's Summit. Um, the People's Summit is a counter summit. I don't know if you've all heard of uh, the Organization of American States. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, they're holding their summit of the Americas, um, or have, or as some comrades have been joking, the summons of the Americas, uh, this year in Los Angeles, the first time it's being held in the United States since 1994. Um, and it's been a huge embarrassment for the Biden administration as he immediately did not invite Cuba, Venezuela, or Nicaragua, and it, it sparked a boycott across the Americas. Um, there are so many countries that are refusing to participate. The White House has been scrambling to save face. And in the meantime, uh, we've been building the counter summit in the tradition of counter summits throughout history where labor unions, social movements, mass movements, political parties will come together and create a platform for the voices of the excluded to actually be heard and to share their vision of what the future and what regional integration would look like in the Americas. So the People Summit will happen June 8, 9, and 10 in Los Angeles. It's a packed program of amazing uh, panels and workshops and plenaries and performances. Uh, and if you can't come to Los Angeles, we hope you can all come to Los Angeles and join us in person. But we're also live streaming in English and Spanish. So you can look at peoplesummit2022.org and get all that information there. Um, and real quick, the People's Forum is a political education and cultural center in New York City. Um, we build... Uh, education programs for building working class internationalism um, in New York and beyond. And we're also happy to host and be a space for organizations to convene across many different sectors of uh, struggle. We have cultural performances, we have classes, we have a cafe, a library, and a bookstore. And uh, we hope you all can come visit us and join us. These attacks will not stop us. Uh, they do not demoralize us. On the on the contrary, we're ready to go, and we're ready to go build even more and build even greater reach for all of our programs and all of our projects, and to bring more comrades into the struggle with us. And real quick, do you uh, want to give people uh, your URL online or uh, sure. your address where people can uh, come by and visit? Sure, I'll give you both. Um, you can visit us at peoplesforum.org. And you'll be able to sign up for a newsletter and get all of our classes and programs once a week, a reminder for all of them. And you can come walk in anytime, uh, 320 West 37th Street in Midtown between 8th and 9th Avenue. We're closed right now because we're putting all our efforts into the People Summit. But we'll be back next week and you can visit us in our bookstore and our cafe um, Tuesday through Saturday. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much, Layan Fulehan, Educational Director with the People's Forum. Um, thank you for joining us on the Independent News Hour. We're going to go quickly to a music break and we'll be back with the Amazon Labor Union. Thanks for having me. Tom and Fred by the Rolling Stones. Welcome back to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, here with my co-host, Amu Gagarian. Hi, John. Great to be here with you and all of our listeners on WBAI 99.5 and streaming on WBAI.org. And we do have uh, one more uh, uh, really important segment coming up here with uh, uh, Amazon Labor Union and the, getting the latest on their uh, epic uh, struggle against the largest corporation in the world but first uh we have to make sure and keep our humble radio station on the air uh with uh with the uh, fund appeal we're uh, going through right now to keep our, our uh, antenna and our transmitter on top of four times square right in the middle of new york we have to pay seventeen thousand dollars a month in rent we're three months behind on that rent we need to catch up and surpass that so we don't have to do this appeal again uh, for a while uh, the number is 212-209-2950. Or you can go to give number two WBAI.org uh, and you can become, you can make a one-time donation or become a monthly sustainer, a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month and be eligible for all sorts of awesome benefits. Right, and you can call the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number 2WBAI.org. That's 212-209-2950 or online at give the number 2WBAI.org to help us keep on, to help keep us on the air every month. And, um, the situation is as real as that. Rent is high all over New York. And unfortunately, we have not been grandfathered in to any cheap leases. We have an extremely expensive lease in Times Square amid the capital of capitalism in the world. So let's keep that signal strong. 212-209-2950. Give the number to WBAI.org. One more time, folks. That's 212-209-2950. Give us a little love. Have a potluck. 
put out a jar, community radio, independent journalism, it needs to stay alive. And ideally, we'd be thriving. So give us Someday. a little coin. Give us a coin if you can. Now, pivoting pivoting to our, our last segment, we are extremely excited to be joined by members of the Amazon Labor Union. So since winning the union election at the massive JFK warehouse in Staten Island this April, the Amazon Labor Union, an independent union, has continued organizing in Staten Island and and far beyond. They are organizing for union wins at the three sister warehouses next to JFK in Staten Island. And also warehouses around the country are indicating that they want to unionize. But this is no easy fight. And in in many, many ways, it's, it's an uphill battle. So while Amazon continues to pour millions, sometimes billions of dollars. Actually, I've been covering this. It's billions of dollars into anti-union campaigning. Uh, The Amazon Labor Union is fighting to start contract negotiations at JFK and and win protections for their workers. But these contract negotiations have been stalled by the corporation's objections to the election results of that win. And those objections will be heard in an NLRB, that's National Labor Relations Board office, in Phoenix, Arizona on June 13th. Additionally, just yesterday, the Amazon Labor Union faced off Amazon in labor court here in New York. And this time, they were the ones bringing the complaints to the board, the labor board. And it was in regards to six out of many unfair labor practice complaints that they filed, essentially saying that the union, you know, is is not... um, abiding by the sort of like uh, rules um, around union organizing that the that the company is not sorry but you know what Seth Goldstein lawyer with the Amazon labor union is going to explain that to us uh, in much better words and we also have Connor Spence here uh, an organizer with Amazon labor union who has worked tirelessly to organize JFK we are so happy to have you both here with us Seth we're going to start for you tell our listeners what is going on around this unfair labor practice um, charges in court that began yesterday, this hearing, and uh, how it will proceed? Yes, um, we uh, filed various charges in the spring of 2021, and it's almost taking a year to get to court. Trial began yesterday. The cases involved surveillance, um, threats, with removal of union literature, um, an unlawful discharge of one of our union activists, Dequan Smith, and other um, types of unlawful practices by the company. Um, uh, Surveillance was another one. Um, And uh, the trial began uh, with arguments over motions. Amazon wanted to shut down our um, public hearing. We actually urged everybody to come to witness um, the human rights violations that Amazon has created. Um, on uh, that account, the judge ruled against Amazon. Then Amazon, in an effort to further delay the case, they um, wanted to consolidate um, this case with another case of unlawful violations scheduled to start in September. Um and the judge refused to um, go along with um, Amazon's motion. Now Amazon is trying to delay production of evidence and information that we requested. 
and those fights are going on. But more significantly, yesterday, um, Derek uh, Palmer, one of the union activists, spoke um, and testified about some of the pressures he felt when um, he was threatened and some of his um, union um, literature was taken away. And then today we had um, another uh, worker testify, Janet, who um, testified that she was threatened and promised benefits from one of the union-busting um, consultants. So um, the testimony on both accounts went very well, and we're very encouraged. Right. And now the, the National Labor Relations Board uh, uh, bureaucracy is obviously very creaky and often slow-moving in addressing these uh, issues. But uh, if you all do prevail with your charges, what do you want to see as a remedy? And, of course, when we talk about Amazon side of things, I, I just think it takes incredible huspa for uh, Amazon to claim that they're the uh, they're the victim uh, here after everything they pulled. But what do you all want as the remedies, uh, assuming so, you all can prevail? Um, the board does have new remedies. One of them is going to be a public reading of the documents. So all the workers in the um, in JFK 8 know that Amazon violated the law. Um, we're also seeking management training by the board. So employer, the employer managers and supervisors will understand that they can't um, violate the National Labor Relations Act. That is also extended to the union busters. And they're going to have to receive training as well. Also, um, regarding Daquan Smith, we want Daquan to come back to work. Um, we want an apology letter by the employer, which uh, the board said they'll have to give. We want to have um, full back pay. He should be paid consequential damages, any damages that were caused that resulted from his unlawful termination. And we're looking for um, emotional, um, you know, damages as well, because I think this was a very difficult situation for Daquan to lose his job when he was trying to, you know, make something of himself and, um, you know, psychological and emotional damages are one of the new remedies. So we're seeking all of that. And, um, you know, we want Daquan to return back to work quickly. So this is what we're looking for. And, oh, and, and also just let me say, that we're also going to the attorney general and demanding that the attorney general um, should start reviewing all the labor violations of Amazon in New York state to take away the tax abatements and the subsidies that they're getting under the Excelsior tax plan. And also some of the local um, tax um, giveaways that were, that were provided to Amazon. I think it's over $400 million statewide. Right. Right. Seth, and now, you know, tell us briefly about the June 13th hearing, what to expect um, and any similarities with Bessemer. And then then we'd like to pivot to Connor to talk about organizing. Well, um, it's it's very actually dissimilar to Bessemer because in this case, we've won the election and Amazon is trying to take away the votes of um thousands of workers. This is very similar to what happened after the 2020 election with Trump and steal the vote. And that's what they're trying to do now. So um, they've come forward with 25 frivolous uh, objections. 
For instance, they're not happy that we interrupted their uh, captive audience meetings. They're not happy that we brought unfair labor practice charges against them. They're um, not happy that there was enough NLRB personnel to handle the vote, even though, you know, they could very easily stand with unions and make sure that the NLRB has proper funding. And the list goes on and on. And um, we're going to um, present our case and urge the um, region, Region 28, to uphold the election and to order Amazon to bargain with us. Right. And that's what we're, we're looking forward to. And, um, you know, we know that uh, the people in Staten Island, workers in Staten Island are looking forward to winning a contract, you know, especially those who <laughs> voted yes. So, uh, unfortunately, the um, NLRB um, can be helpful, but it can also really stall these processes. And you could read more about that on independent.org. But Connor, now uh, turning to you, could you just tell us a little bit, you know, update our listeners, what, what's it been like on the ground in JFK where the election was won, but also in the whole facility? Uh, what's the sentiment of the workers like? And what's organizing been like since not only the win, but all this public recognition? Sure. So, um, yeah, leading up to the election, Amazon's anti-union campaign was pretty uh, aggressive. And uh, it was funny because um, the day the the vote was over and it was clear that we'd won by a margin of over 500 votes, uh, the company was completely silent on the matter. They put out their objections and they, um, you know, put that statement out to the press. But as far as the workforce, um, they still have not really addressed the um, the result of the vote. And um, unfortunately, it's a little demoralizing for the uh, for the people who thought that, you know, it was simple as making a Democratic choice uh, in a NLRB election. But now they're seeing that it's possible for companies like Amazon to um, delay certification of a union for uh, months, maybe even years, if they want to appeal the decisions that um, the federal courts make all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, so it's one major thing that we have to contend with is uh, helping workers understand that, you know, this process can take time, that we still need to continue to organize and that um, the, the victory in the election was, you know, only the first of many victories. We still need to uh, work toward getting a really strong contract. And that requires a lot more uh, organizing on our part as well. Sorry. And, and um, what, you know, what can you say about regrouping in this moment? Um, there was a lot of fervor going into the election and a lot of doubt and then a lot of excitement around the win. Um, and I think workers all over the world were empowered and inspired by that win. But, uh, you know, labor organizing, like all organizing and maybe more than some is extremely difficult, especially in this country. So you guys are paving the way. I know this is a little on the spot, but how, how can you regroup? Like how can the momentum propel forward and, and what kind of support do you need? I mean, generally um, it's been a little difficult for us being that we organized ourselves as an independent union, as opposed to affiliating with an established union. Um, if, you know, if we'd done that, maybe we could have, um, you know, handled uh, the the kind of the chaos, the good chaos that is, that ensued after the election was over. Uh, right now, it's tough because you know we 
are all uh, worker organizers. So we all work our full-time jobs at Amazon and running the union is a full-time job and we're still trying to build it up as we go. Uh, thankfully, we've gotten a lot of support from pretty much everybody in the labor movement, a lot of, you know, pro bono legal assistance, um, you know, we've had assistance uh, building our financial infrastructure, assistance from other unions and organizers. Um, but generally, uh, there is a lot of uh, outreach coming from other warehouses and other uh, Amazon businesses all over the country from workers who want us to help them organize. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot for us to tackle right now. But the advice we give to them is that essentially they're just going to have to do exactly what we did at JFK 8. It's got to be a worker-led movement um, where they organize themselves independently. And when they're ready, um, our two movements can kind of converge and then we can use that leverage that we have to put pressure on the company to get even better working conditions. Okay. We'll, we'll have to leave it there. Our, our time is uh, winding down, but I want to thank uh, Connor Spence and Seth Goldstein, both from the Amazon labor union for joining us this evening on the independent news hour on WBAI radio. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I want to thank uh, uh, Sue Brisk uh, for her reporting from the field uh, that helped this show, and also, of course, our board uh, operator, Reggie Johnson. Uh, We'll be back same time next week right here on this uh, radio station with the next edition of the Independent uh, News Hour. Also, just want to shout out that there is a Starbucks union protest getting underway at 6 p.m. outside of uh, MoMA, uh, where they're protesting the presence of, of Starbucks uh, board chair Melody Hobson, who's receiving an award from the prestigious museum uh, while she's engaged, been engaged in all sorts of uh, outrageous union busting at that uh, mega corporation. And we have uh, two reporters there right now, so you can look for our coverage uh, online. And uh, that that just about wraps it up. Uh, Amba, what do we have for our musical outro? A classic. It never entered entered my mind by Miles Davis Quintet. A good song for thinking. We'll see you all next week. See you all next week.